So we're continuing on with the Christmas Moments series that kind of broke out of the book of Acts in order to get into um, what some people are describing the strangest Christmas series ever, because this is my third week in it, and I spend most of my time in the Old Testament. I can't help myself. I don't know why. It just seems to be that way. Spoiler alert, it's going to happen again today. But uh, So we talked about the silent night and the profound silence of 400 years that goes between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew. That was week one, silent night. And week two, which was his last week, we talked about Emmanuel, God with us, and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's a thing, but we don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. Hang on just a second. I'm going to disappear for a minute. Okay. Um, so that was last week. This week, uh, we're going to focus on the manger. So the manger, of course, comes from the Gospel of Luke. Now, we have a lot of tradition built up around this uh, that maybe you know, maybe you heard, maybe you would swear it's in the Bible, but it isn't. This is all we really know about it. It's in Luke chapter 2. While they were there, that's talking about Joseph and Mary when they were when they're in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, she wrapped him in clothes, some people remember swaddling clothes from the Old Testament for the King, King James Version, and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, a lot of translations will say there was no room in the inn. That may be how you know it. Notice there's nothing here about an innkeeper. That was added later in some pageant or something. There's nothing in the Bible ever about an inn, innkeeper who rejects them. Well, that's like part of the story, right? Because you know, sometimes they play him a little bit wistful. Sometimes these real mean guys slam the door in their face. Um, we, don't, uh, we don't have that information. Now, the reason that this is an NASB translates that guest room is that's actually the trans, proper translation for the Greek there, guest room. There is a Greek word for inn, and in the Gospel of Luke, that gets used later uh, when Luke is uh, relating Jesus' story about the Good Samaritan. You may remember the Good Samaritan takes this wounded person to an inn. And that's the Greek word that's actually normally used for inn. This room is, this, this one is actually more like special room, guest room, uh, activity room, something like that. When Jesus sends the disciples to get the upper room where they have a final last supper, that's the same word that's used there which leads to some speculation that maybe this person who rejected them wasn't a stranger at all, but the family member who said, I don't have any room in the house, but I got the special room and there's no room there either. And so that's how they ended up out where the manger is. And there's some dispute about where the manger is. Sometime in a couple hundred years after Jesus uh, was born, came and died, uh, a monk sent notification to the uh, Pope, I guess that'd be a lot, a lot of years later, uh, and he said, we found the birthplace of Christ. We found the manger, and we found where he was, uh, where he was kept. And it actually, you know, we always have stables, but it's actually believed to be a cave where the, the animals were kept nearby. And if you go to the Holy Land and you take the Holy Land special moments tour, uh, you will visit a cave. And they literally have a star on the ground where supposedly Jesus' manger was. No one has any idea on that, by the way, but you've got to show the tourists something. So they have this spectacular star there. On the end, they have this manger made up of silver that you can see, which has nothing to do with Jesus. Um, and the monk who found everything was so disappointed, you know, they, because they thought they may have found the remains or something, but those got thrown away. They got replaced with a silver manger, which wouldn't have been what he's in. Uh, actually, most people believe it was a stone manger. If you look at that period of time, they typically would carve about stone, like a trough, and that's where they would put the food or the water for the animal. And that's probably what it was. It probably wasn't wood at all. But the question which kind of drives the whole series is why a manger at all? 
Because in Isaiah, we have this prophecy given to us about Jesus. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. We know you've seen Christmas cards with this on it, right? And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Well, it seems to me if that's who's being born, he should have been born in a palace. Or maybe city hall or something, some, some area of the government, because you know, according to prophecy here in Isaiah, he's going to be a counselor, like an attorney or something, and he's going to be, the government's going to be on his shoulders, which means he's going to take over the government, and he's going to govern fairly and rightly. He's going to be a king. He's going to be a leader. Shouldn't that child be started in a palace or something like that? You know? But uh, think about this. This is God's presentation of Jesus Christ. He has known Jesus Christ was coming since before he put Adam and Eve in the garden because he's eternal and knows everything. He knew that man was going to fall and he knew that Jesus Christ was going to be redemption. He has had eternity to plan Jesus' entrance into the world. Now you would think from just a symbolic standpoint that he would have done a better job than a stinking major outside of Bethlehem is like, what's going on? Where's the symbolism there? I didn't, you know, I was like, I'm trying to understand what God's trying to tell us by his choice of the birth of Jesus. Because I, I don't believe that any of this is an accident. I believe that God has put things, because God, man, he plays a very deep game. He has layers and layers and layers of symbolism here, and we can't possibly understand them all, but it's like, I can't understand any of them. It makes no sense at all. Um, maybe if we look in Hebrews, when, when Hebrews describes them, it's his days on earth when he's offered up his prayers and supplications and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was the son, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation, who all will obey him, and he is called as God, as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is actually a priest that predates the law in the Old Testament. This is a priest. Well, you know, it would have been a great place to have a priest born would have been the temple. I'm sure they had room there. I'm sure there was a room somewhere that the priest could have taken in Mary and Joseph. And that's a great place for Jesus to be born, I think. You know, that'd be awesome to have him born in the temple of Bethlehem. That'd be great. You know, they worship God there and their God comes there. It makes sense to me, but that's not why. In fact, it's kind of some sort of a stable. Maybe that stable was located in a cave, but it's a stable. And none of that made sense to me. And that's when I started my long trip into the Old Testament, which you all now go on a ride with me because I started praying about that and said, God, why? Why here? Why this place? And um, I think I might have an answer for us. And it goes go back to this guy we talked about last week, back to King David. Now, it's not that I'm fixated on King David, although he is like one of my absolute favorite characters of the Bible. God seems a bit fixated on King David because everything is kind of used as in the New Testament points back to David as a point of reference. You know, it's the line of David. It's the bloodline of David. It's son of David. It's, you know, he's always, you know, comes back to this David because the, you know, the, the promise, the covenant was made with David that his, his line would be where the Messiah came from. And so all the New Testament keeps pointing back to that because they're trying to make, let people understand they're authenticating who, who Jesus is. And he's part of the line of David. So it's probably, I think, a natural thing to say, well, what did David do? Now, David was from Bethlehem. We know that. That's where his dad was from, Jesse. And when David was first, you know, comes on the scene, he's in Bethlehem. That's where he is. 
So just a reset for those of you uh, who maybe you know, slept through that part of your CCD class or Sunday school class. Let me reset the story of David up to this point for you. Uh, he was a shepherd boy, and at this time, they, Israel had its first king, a guy named Saul. He started off well, then he becomes very self-centered, and he starts reaching for things that uh, he's not supposed to have. And so God says, I'm done with him. I'm going to pick my king now. The first king was kind of what Israel wanted. He was the tallest, biggest, best looking guy in Israel. He, he's Hollywood's image of a king. And God says, okay, that was yours. See what happened. Now I'm going to show you mine. He takes his ruddy complexion kid, which I believe is the Bible's very tough way of saying he was acne scarred. And he, you know, he's kind of greasy. He's out in the, sh- in, in the sheep field. He's the youngest of the sons. And God takes him from the sheep field and has his servant uh, anoint him with oil as the next king of Israel. The problem is the first king of Israel is still alive. And first kings don't like it when second kings come along. And so, um, you know, there's a little bit of a, of, a, of a tension that will show up in the story. Now, at first, everything's great because God's anointing is on David. And he spends about three, four years just alone with him in the sheep field, the Holy Spirit, teaching David how to do everything he's going to need to do as a king. I mean, this kind of goes through a very intense college class led by the Holy Spirit. He also learns how to fight. He kills a lion. He kills a bear. And so eventually he'll show up on the battlefield by accident as far as everybody else is concerned, but of course by God's plan. He will square off in the most famous battle of all time, David versus Goliath. He will win that battle, but not just that battle. Actually, behind him, all of Israel will attack the Philistines and wipe out the entire Philistine army. So he wins this great victory for Israel. Saul knows a good thing when he sees him. He takes him, he, he marries him off to his daughter, brings him into the palace. So David goes from the sheep field to the palace. Pretty big jump there. And uh, then, not knowing what else to do with him, he makes him a captain of his bodyguard, and eventually made him a captain of a battalion of the, of the Israeli army. And David's probably a teenager at this time. He's maybe 18 years old by now. And so here he is, you know, young guy, you know, his voice probably hasn't finished changing yet, and he's in charge of this army, but the army loves him because they never lose. Every time they have a problem with Philistines, uh, Saul will dispatch David and his army, and they'll win. And uh, he has all these great victories. David in his whole life will never lose a battle. And uh, so these great victories, the men are following him willingly, and Israel's starting to catch on to the fact that they have a champion, and it's not Saul, it's David. And so they start singing his praises, and, and Saul hears it, and he gets jealous. And so he does what a lot of self-centered kings try to do. He tries to kill him. And David now will spend the next several years of his life on the run. And at first, he's just kind of, he's, he has no idea this is coming. You know, he's never betrayed Saul in any way. He's best friends with Saul's son. He has married Saul's daughter. You know, he thought everything was going great. All of a sudden, you know, for, just because he was doing his job, uh, all of a sudden, Saul's going to try to kill him. So he's on the run. It takes him a while to kind of figure out where he's even going to go. But he eventually makes his way back down to near his hometown of Bethlehem. We're picking up the story now in 1 Samuel 22. So David departed from Nob and escaped to the cave of Abdullam. Now that cave exists to this day. It's mentioned a few times in scripture. It's right outside of Bethlehem. If you go to Bethlehem, you can walk up to there. It's not too far. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. So they didn't know if he was alive or dead. You know, they don't have 
text messaging and Twitter and all that. You know, what's going on with David? And David's not post- hashtag fleeing. You know, that doesn't work in the, old tas- in the Old Testament, right? So they have no idea. They, they've heard rumors, but they don't know if David's alive or dead. So it's really kind of a big thing to the family. Hey, David's alive and he's nearby. And so they all go to here, you know, to go to see him. But word travels. You know, all, all of a sudden, everybody knows David is there. Now, not everybody knows he's been anointed king, but those rumors are starting to spread too. You know, there's a reason why Saul's trying to kill him. And, you know, everybody, you know, he was up until like a month ago, the great champion of Israel. Everybody loved him. Now all of a sudden they're supposed to hate him. Like, wait a minute, not sure if we can do that. Um, so everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So basically he becomes the Statue of Liberty, you know, for Israel. It's like, yeah, everybody come here. Now, by the way, this is not the way you want to build a kingdom. I'm going to take everybody who has no money, everybody who has no chance, and everybody that's been persecuted. I'm going to make, I'm going to start with them. Not a real good place to start a, 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 an army either. You know, now, of course, uh, you might say, well, that's kind of how America started with a ragtag army. Yes and no. We also had some help from the French and the Prussians. But um, so that's where he is. But he became captain over all of them. You know, it's pretty easy to lead malcontents and the people who, who have nothing, nothing to offer. You know, they're looking for a leader, anything, a hope, any dream. I need a leader of some sort. So um, that's who he was. He became the captain over all of them. Now, God is going to now bring him a group of people, and I love this name. They're known that they will become known as David's Mighty Men which would be a great rock band name, I just think. David's Mighty Men would be awesome. Definitely a hard, heavy metal rock band. But uh, there's 30 of them. I don't know. That's a pretty big band. But uh, so there's, a, there's you know, David's Mighty Men. Now, in 2 Samuel, they'll go back and kind of give a little tiny brief history of each of them. And we did a series on this called Chase the Lion, so I'm not going to go into all of them. But uh, they kind of told us a little bit. The interesting thing is 2 Samuel is telling all the exploits that took place before David. Like in order to get into David's mighty men, you had to have this amazing resume. And three of them, these three guys were, were there first. So three guys are going to join him. And they're not just malcontents. They're fighting men. They're fighting men who have a pedigree of fighting. And they won't fight for Saul, which should tell us a little bit about Saul. We don't know whether they left Saul's army or what. But they have this reputation, these great warriors. And they come to David because in David they see the king they want to, they want to follow. They don't want to follow Saul. But they've heard stories of David. For one thing, he's victorious. You know, he's, he faced down Goliath. That's a guy you're willing to follow. But for another thing, there's something different about David. They travel all the way there to see him. And by the way, if you're going to start seeing some of these ideas that you've read about in other stories, yeah, they've all borrowed from David. I mean, a lot of the stories that you may have heard of Robin Hood and King Arthur and all these things, they all borrowed from the Bible. You know, they, they steal stuff from the Bible. The Bible was there first. But you're going to see a lot of these things that play out in a lot, of the, the, a lot of the famous stories maybe you grew up reading as a kid or something because they recognize that there's something that resonates in the truth of the Bible. And so there's a lot of this here, but it, David did it first. And so anyway, so, so these three mighty men, they come to David in the harvest time and they met him at the cave. But when they start gathering, they hear that the Philistines come and they're camping in the, in the valley of Raphim. Now that is right outside Jerusalem. They're not camping there on the way to someplace. I mean, I'm sorry, Bethlehem. They're not camping there on the way to somewhere else. Their next move is going to be to take Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a very rich city. It was kind of a jewel of the Israeli uh, nation. And as soon as they heard that the Philistines were there, King Saul should have been coming with an army. But you'll notice he never shows up. 
because he's off living his own world. He's, he doesn't, no, that's Bethlehem. It's not that far from Jerusalem. Oh, that's Bethlehem. He lets it go. But suddenly David and his family that came to visit him is cut off from their homeland because there's a Philistine encampment right down beneath them. The Philistines don't know they're there, of course. They're getting ready to bring in more, and they're going to surround Bethlehem. They're going to start a siege. They're going to take the city which is a very, very, very rich city. And so David then goes with his people out to what they call the stronghold. We don't know where this is. It's probably like cliffs nearby that have been fortified. And they kind of just take the fighting men there. And they set up this encampment where they can see, they can see the plain where the, where the Philistines have encamped and they can see the city of Bethlehem. And David looks there and he realizes he and his family are now cut off from their home. He couldn't go home now if he wanted to. And Saul ain't coming. And so he's, he's seeing this. And then he, said, then he says something interesting. He looks, and he looks at Bethlehem, and he says this, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is right there by the gate. He actually, you know, speaks out loud. Now, I believe he's speaking a lot more than just a drink of water. I, I think because the word that's used here is he wishes for, he longs for, and he greatly desires that. So I believe what's happened is David's looking at this situation he's in and he's looking back to a simpler time. There was a time when he was a shepherd and his greatest problem in life was getting the sheep through that valley, through the gate where they could stop and get a drink. Now, the way, the, the way those fountains would have been set up is down below, there's this big like overflow area. That's where the sheep and stuff would come and drink. But if you walk the steps up the hill a little bit, that's where the fountain is coming out where you could go get a drink you know, as a person. And then that would flow down below where the, where the livestock would, would drink. And so it was probable that David would come through this area a lot and he'd be dry and thirsty coming home from the fields with the sheep. And he would stop there, water the sheep, and get a drink for himself. And when that's what you're doing, that water tastes wonderful. I don't know if anybody's had a situation like that. This is my well of Bethlehem. Uh, this isn't actually a picture of me, but it might have been. Because when I grew up, and some of you grew up in my, life, in, in, in my time, our parents would kick us out of the house daily. Get out of here. Go outside and play. You know, didn't care what we did just be back for dinner. And we'd go out. And you know, we'd have, we had a pack of guys who kind of would get together and you know, about six of us or so, and we'd play. Now, once you got outside, we hated getting outside, you know, because it was hot out there, you know, or whatever. But once you're out there, you didn't want to come back. Because you knew if you came back, your reward was going to be your mom was going to give you chores. Because she sent you outside for a reason. You know, I'm tired of you. Go outside. You come back, she's going to find something for you to do. So if you had to come back, now we wouldn't eat. You know, if we, got, if we, went, we left the house at like noon, we wouldn't eat. We'd eat for dinner. You could go all day without food when you're a kid, but you can't go all day without water. So you need to drink. And uh, so you would come back near the house to get the drink. And that's where the hose was, all right? Because you didn't want mom to know you were back, which I'm pretty sure she would know because she could hear the water running. But, you know, we all pretended that we were getting away with something. In almost every house in my neighborhood, you had two hoses on two sides of the house. One was about 100 feet long. You don't want that hose. That's been sitting in the sunlight, it's hot, and it tastes like hose. You don't want that hose. But on the other side of the house, there's about a six-foot hard rubber hose. 
that's your hose. Because it's not as big, it's not as long, and it doesn't taste as much like hose, right? And so you would get a drink. Now, you would still have this warming period where you had the six-foot hose plus the, you know, whatever those pipes were going into the house. It was warm because the sun was beating on them. So you'd usually start up that hose and you let it run for a little bit, you know, put your hand in it until it was warm enough, uh, cool enough to drink, right? That's what my friends are doing. We always would take turns who got to go first, you know, let me go first now because you're thirsty, right? We're all thirsty. That's why we came back home looking for water. And so uh, I actually liked it when it was still a little warm. Not because I liked warm water. That was gross but because it would change to cold water in your mouth. That was, to me, the greatest thing. The greatest moment from my childhood that I can remember is like drinking it, and all of a sudden it changes from that warm water into cold water. It's like, that's the best water ever. You know, better by far than anything I taste in a bottle now. Probably not, right? I probably go back and taste it, and I go, oh, I can't believe I drank that as a kid. But I look forward to it. You know, oh, I know where that hose is. And I think that's a little bit of what's going on with David. I'm sure the Bethlehem fountain was much better than my hose. But it's a little bit what's going on because he was looking back to a simpler time. There was a time when I was a shepherd. I wasn't a giant killer. I wasn't a man on the run. I wasn't anointed as next king of Israel. My life was simple. I simply let a bunch of dumb sheep in, and I'd take a drink of water, and that was the end of my troubles for the day. I'd go home and get a nap. Life was so much simpler then. And I believe there's something going on here in David's heart where he says, man, I wish that maybe just for a day or maybe for a week, I could be David the shepherd again. And the Philistines weren't there, and Saul wasn't trying to kill me, and I could just walk in there and get a drink, but I can't. So I'd have to have someone to get it for me. That's how bad my life has gotten. I just want something simpler. You know, uh, I, I think almost everybody who's ever been involved in any kind of mission, any kind of ministry, any kind of thing like that, there comes a time when this hits you. Like, you know what? I don't know if the juice is worth the squeeze. I am so tired of this constant squeeze. I just would love to have a simpler time. Now, Jesus warns us this is going to happen. In Luke 9, he says this. Anyone who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back isn't fit for the kingdom of heaven. If you're going to put your hand to the plow, don't look back. You're not fit for the kingdom. You're not fit for what's coming in front of you. Yeah, you're working, but if you keep looking back, you're never going to get where you need to go. You can't do that. You can't live in, you know, in your rear view mirror. You are here for a purpose. Now, what happens next is pretty remarkable. Because what David doesn't realize is he's already king. He doesn't know that. You can understand why he wouldn't know that, because the guy wearing the crown is trying to kill him. But as far as God's concerned, the moment that oil hit his head with the anointing, he was the king of Israel. That's his man. And there was a pretender on the throne now. His name is Saul. Now, it doesn't look, that's not the way it looks. It's not the way it would look like to anybody else. It's not the way it looked to David, who's on run from his life for his life constantly in this situation. But those three guys didn't travel to follow a shepherd boy. Those three great warriors came to follow a king. And what they heard was not a shepherd boy wanting to go back to the pastures. What they heard was a king who had a wish. And they said, you know what? We can't do anything about this King Saul problem. But by God, we can get our king a drink of water. And this is an incredible thing what happens next. But you have, you have to understand that, you know, this is, why would they do this? Well, because they're following someone whose heart's after God. And they may not even know why they're following him, but that's why they're following him. And the thing about if you follow someone whose heart's after God, we know that that was David, because that's, that's what God said about him. Eventually, you end up at God. And so they kind of got a sense, I don't think they could have articulated it, that us following David is going to be different than us following Saul. This is going to take place 
that we can't go on our own. We don't even know how to get there. David had an advantage no one else had. The Spirit was with him. And so we're going to follow him. And whatever he needs in order for us to remind him who he is, we will do. So the three mighty men, this is amazing, breaks through the camp of the Philistines and drew water from the well of Bethlehem. Now, I love Samuel. He was a great prophet. He's a, he's a really lousy writer because he's, he's missing over some really important things here. Because remember, they're in front of the gates of, of Bethlehem. So the Philistine army's here. There's a space between, a, a dead space, just open air, between them and the gate. The gates are locked. There's sentries on the gate, and nobody knows there's somebody up there in the stronghold. So they're going to go through the Philistines somehow, get through all their pickets without getting seen. They're going to cross this open area of maybe 100 feet of dead space in, the, in you know, moon shining bright. They're going to somehow scale over the wall uh, in front of Bethlehem. They're going to not get shot or seen by any of the sentries in Israel. They're going to go to this fountain everybody knows about right in the middle of the thing. They're going to draw a flask of water, make it all the way back, and no one's going to see them. It's like they're three ninjas. You know, they're, this is one of the most incredible things. And they're just doing it because David said, man, I'd love to have a drink of water from my fountain. That's all it took. Oh, okay, cool. He wants to, let's go do that. That's just kind of who they were. Now they bring it back to David. And this is where I'm really mad at uh, Samuel because he doesn't tell us what happens next. Because that's got to be a cool scene, right? They're sitting there. They're kind of laughing, snickering to themselves. They still have the black face on from you know, when, they, when they darken their skin or whatever. Hey, David, 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 come out. We've got to get you something. You're going to love this. You know, David comes out. What is it? And they hand this flask of water, kind of dirty, you know, at the bottom. He says, uh, water? Thanks, guys. I got some in my tent, you know. No, no, no. This is special water. Why is this special? Because that's from the well in Bethlehem. Can you imagine David's face at that moment when he says, well, that's from, the, what, that's from the fountain that you wanted to drink from. And when it dawns on David, what these three guys did without really being asked, right, on their own. This amazing feat. He has a, a, an immediate reaction that shows who David is. Now, here's where Hollywood would get the story wrong. Because here's where Hollywood would give David this big speech. This great speech, you know, and he'd stand up and he'd start talking. And the music would swell. And you'd see the people kind of coming out from all their tents to listen. You know, that'd be a great moment, right, in the movie. Where he's talking about what they did and how he knows them. And they're so great, you know. And, you know, I swear before my God, the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, that I, we will all drink from the well tomorrow because we'll take, you know, something like that. That doesn't happen, by the way. None of that happens. In fact, what David does next uh, seems almost impossible to believe that he would do this. He takes the water they gave him and he pours it out on the ground. Yeah, that's what he does. He takes it and he pours it out on the ground. Now you would think that he's slapping the guys in the face like, don't do this. That's not what he's doing. What he's doing is something far more meaningful. It's just we don't understand it because we haven't grown up with biblical and Leviticus law. Um, so David refuses to drink it. Instead, he pours it out before the Lord as a drink offering. I'm going to come back to that. And he says this, far be it from me, Lord. He's praying to God, far be it from me, Lord, to do this. This is the blood of the men. This is, this is like their own blood they went and got this with. And I, I'm not going to drink this. They risked their lives for it. And David would not drink it. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm just, it's just not going to happen. What's happened is suddenly David realizes something. He's the king. In this moment, he's the king, and he's also the and this is and David would be the only king this is true of. He is a spiritual and political leader of Israel. 
God will bring both of those together in David because he's, he's still the spiritual leader. He will lead them into prayers. He will lead them in the temple. He will write the songs that they sing. David will lead them both as a spiritual leader and he'll also lead them as a political leader. It's the only time it happens uh, of all the kings. And he realizes suddenly who he is. He is, a, he is not a shepherd in hiding. He is a king in waiting. And here's one thing you need to know. You don't need a canteen of the water when you own the well. That's his well. He's actually the king of Israel right now. And he realizes that these men have told him, you're our king. Maybe you think you want a simpler time, and maybe that would have been easy to get a drink, but we can do anything for you. Command us. We're here to serve the king, not a shepherd. And David will embrace this because what he does is he takes this, he says, this is a sacrifice greater than, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not Saul. I'm not just going to drink this because I want it. Saul would have, would have mixed it with wine probably and drunk it. David says, that's not who I am. I see this for what it is. This is like your own blood. This is your sweat and your blood and you did this. I'm not drinking it. This is not just a drink anymore. I'm pouring it back out to God as a drink offering. What is that? Because it seems like a pretty bad offering, right? I mean, water, really? You know, it seems like that's not, if, and by the way, we don't, condone drink offerings, please don't dump your bottles of water here in the church. We'll clean up after that. Don't do that. That's not what we do. But they were actually commanded in Leviticus to do it. And, and, and it actually shows up before Leviticus. Leviticus I'll share this too. But um, this is when they're, they're not yet in the promised land. And so uh, God tells Moses this. The Lord says to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land, I am going to give you. So they're not in the promised land yet. And you reap its harvest the first thing you do, this is what's known as the first, first fruits offering. The first thing you do is you must offer a burnt offering together with grain offering and a drink offering. This is to be lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live, Leviticus 23. So he says, when you enter into your promised land, the very first thing you'll do is you'll give an offering out of the first fruits you get. Uh, there's a story about um, a missionary who's in some poor little village, and he's teaching for the Bible, and he got the tithing section. And, you know, he's got these poor villagers. You know, they don't make any money, really. They're kind of barely subsiding, getting, getting an existence. And, but he preaches it anyway, because it was, you know, next on the list of things to teach. The next day, there's a knock at the door, and one, a little boy who was in that uh, preaching, was in, was in, was in the, um, the service, he comes up to him, and he has fish in his hand. He says, what's this? He says, this is my tithe. He says, really? And he takes it, well, thank you. And he looks, and it's the only fish the boy has. He says, well, where are the other nine fish? He says, they're still in the river. I'm going to go get them, right? That's first offering. That's first fruit offering there, right? He's like, this, this is the first one I have. Here, I'll go get the nine. And by the way, I believe God definitely gave him nine. And, you know, but because that the, shows the heart, the, the, the first offering. So the very first thing you do is you do this. Now, I believe what David is doing is actually a prophetic offering. He's not yet taken over the kingdom, but he sees that his army is forming. And so he actually, I think, is making a prophetic word here. He's saying, this is the first fruit. This is the first fruit of the kingdom, which is, which is yet to come. Now, we see uh, this show up actually before Leviticus law, way, way, way back in the day of Jacob. I don't think I've ever really preached on Jacob here, which is weird in five years. But uh, Jacob is one of the, the three people who are considered the foundation of the tribe of uh, the nation of Israel. So when the Israelites would, would pray to God in, in those days, they always started the same way. O God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
right? What they're saying is not just any God, that God. And they're specifically saying that way, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they want God to know they have a right to pray to him. Because you have made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and because that promise, and I'm from their line, that promise holds for me. I'm part of the covenant. All their prayers always started that way, up until Jesus Christ rewrites that. He teaches the disciples to pray. Every prayer was started that way. So this is Jacob. What's happened here is Jacob is, has had a, he's a, bit of a bit of a con man, to be honest with you. And uh, he's gotten, he's tricked his brother, and his older, more powerful brother is mad at him and wants to kill him, and so he's gone on the run. But he's coming back now to make peace. And God will meet him on the way, and God will say, you know, now that you're doing this, you will be mine. And he changes his name from Jacob to Israel. He says, you will now call yourself Israel, and you will be my, I, I will make my nation come from you, not Esau, come from you. And so, so he tells him that. He tells him all that in a dream. And when he wakes up in the morning, Jacob does this. And God left the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar of stone in that place, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken to him Bethel, which actually means house of the Lord. Now, why in the world would he offer a drink offering? Because this is kind of where it all starts. This is the first reference to it in the Bible. Why would he offer a drink offering? Well, when you're in the wilderness and you're traveling, water is the most precious thing you have. By far. There's nothing else even close. If you run out of water before you run out of wilderness, you're in trouble. But he took it and said, God, you just promised me that you're going to bring a nation from me. I'm accepting that promise, and I'm pouring this drink out because I won't need it because you've told me you're going to reconcile me with Esau, and he does. And so he's, he can stop running now, because God has now taken him. He's going to take him there. So this is ahead of time. Now, one more thing, real quick. I want to show this. One other place it shows up in the New Testament. Paul uses the same, same expression twice. He says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me. He's saying, everything I have is about to end. He's going to be killed. And he, he's right. He is. He's going to be killed. And he says, but that's okay, because everything I've done, I've poured out to the Lord. And so an offering really is when you give what is in your hand for what is in God's heart. That's kind of it. Remember, let's make a deal. I guess it's still on. I don't know. I remember in the old days of Monty Hall. You know, people dress up like crazy and they come down the thing. Let's make a deal. This is the deal. What's in your hand for what's in God's heart? You know, that was always a big thing. And let's make a deal. Was that worth it? You know, sometimes you trade in whatever you had. It was like a microwave. But are you going to trade it for what, you know, Jan the curtain Janice is standing in front of now? And I don't know. Okay, here's a microwave. And they open it up as a donkey or something, you know, and, and, and a year's supply of corn, you know, something like that. And, oh, you got the booby prize. Because um, you never knew, right? But God's saying, do you trust me or not? What, do you think I'm like a Monty Hall trickster? Or do you trust me? Will you trust the plan that I have for you? What you have in your hand, you can hold on to. But you could also give it back to me right now. You could trust me that I have a plan for you beyond your plan. Will you offer me what you have so I can give you what is in my heart? Because the reality is if you give God nothing, you trust God not at all. That's the reality. I have a lot of people tell me they're Christians. I have a lot of people go to church. I have a lot of people tell me they believe in God. And they give him nothing. Nothing. Barely their attention on Sunday mornings. Barely. They give him nothing. How much do you trust him?
really honestly. If, if he's calling you to something greater, believe me, he's calling you to make a sacrifice before you get there. I know of no instance in the Bible where a destiny or dream is given to somebody where they didn't have to make a sacrifice first. None. Jesus says, unless the wheat seed falls to the ground, nothing's going to grow. And we hold on to it. And well, why don't we ain't seeing any fruit? Maybe you need to let go of it. Maybe you need to hand it back to God. Maybe you need to say, this is my offering back to you, Lord. It's not much. It's stupid almost. But this is what I'm offering you. Because I really wanted this, but now I decided I want what you have more. So how does any of this have to do with the manger? (laughs) Well, let me tell you something. (laughs) Here's how it deals with the manger. Remember this little thing about how they met in a cave? That cave is right outside of Bethlehem. Probably not far from and perhaps even the exact spot that David pours the drink offering out. See, David thinks he's making an offering for his kingdom. But God sees beyond that. And even though God would grant him the kingdom and make him the king of Israel, there's another king coming. And I believe this is the same spot. I believe that it's not the same spot, it's within spitting distance of the exact spot that later God would reply with his offering. And that offering, Jesus Christ would then say this. Jesus answered and said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, now give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman of the well said to him, sir, where do you get this living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? The one who started the drink offering, who gave us this well. And Jesus says, look, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks from the water that I give will never thirst. The water I give them will become a well of water springing up into eternal life. See, I believe this is God's reply, Jesus Christ. The living water where you will have eternal life because God never wastes a sacrifice. Are we willing to put our hearts into God's plan for our life is really the question. The question for David and really the question as we see Jesus Christ as God's response. Are we willing to do that? There is a poem that was written by a guy who actually wrote hymns. He was a, he was a guy who wrote a hymn called Oh Abide With Me. Very popular in England, not so much here. But he wrote a poem, never got sent to music, but I, I found this and I thought this is great. I want to end with this. There is a well in Bethlehem still, a fountain at whose brink the weary soul may rest at will, the thirsty stoop and drink. Oh, that we thirst as David then for this eternal spring and have the zeal of David's men to please a higher king. Would you all please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you...